0: 2016 presents
1: welcome back everyone to another episode of the music and photography podcast i'm billy sanford and today my special guest is jess hobbs who many of you may know through youtube or the classic camera revival or just being an awesome ambassador for the analog photography community uh good morning jess how are you doing
2: Hi, Billy. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, Yeah, things are good here. Uh, The farm work is wrapping up finally, slowly. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm starting to find a bit more time to shoot, a bit more time to film videos. So uh, things are good right now.
1: Awesome. And yeah, uh, uh, happy belated Canadian Thanksgiving.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a good time too. Yeah.
1: Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought maybe kind of get to... uh, get us started. You had a story recently that kind of uh, touches on both of these uh, topics, music and photography. Of course, we're going to talk about a lot of things uh, that come at that intersection. But this this was a story you shared recently. and And it had to do with your photography and how somebody else used it in a musical context, but also kind of talks to on some level, I think, a uh, reason why all of us are involved in photography, but why don't you uh, talk us through that story?
2: Sure, so um, I can't remember exactly when it was that I shot this photograph, but I had the idea to do an album cover for a friend of mine. Uh, he has a band, well, at the time he was a solo artist mm-hmm. doing like acoustic punk stuff, um, and na- since then he now has a band, and He's just always been such a traveler. Uh, so my friend is John Creedon. If anyone happens to know who that is, <laughs> he mm-hmm. has ex- he has toured extensively across Canada and throughout the states. He goes by like Greyhound bus, by car, by van, like however he can get around, he gets around. And he's just always on tour. He's always losing his voice because he talks too much, you know, like that kind of <laughs> yeah, right. that kind of musician. And so I just always saw him as you know a bit of like a road warrior right you know like the the kind of musician that will I don't want to say like will always be there in a bad sense I I really mean that truly in a very very good sense because I know that touring can get really tiring for musicians and so everyone needs a break every once in a while but he's just he's just always been there you know I've gone to so many of his shows in so many different towns even uh so that's just the idea I have of him and I drove past this old defunct gas station like many times between like when I used to live in Montreal and then coming down to the farm, it's on the road in between. And especially when I would see it at, you know, like 6am as we're trying to make it to the farm for, you know, starting work at 7am or whatever, the light would just hit it so softly and so beautifully. And I just kept thinking like, that's a perfect album cover for John. I just need the right sky and things will work out. And so I managed to get the shot. I was happy with it at the time. And then when I got my negatives back, I kind of said, oh, I'm not sure. I don't know if I really like the sky. I want to work on it. And I always meant to go back. And then of course, as the years go on, you forget about these things. And after a while, I started to like it a little bit more. And when John decided to gather together with his band and was starting to look for artwork for, for his first album as a band, I was like, well, you're calling it stall. And I feel like that kind of fits in really well with the theme of the photo because it's an old gas station. That's no longer being used. So it's kind of stalled in time, you know, (laughs) Right. and he absolutely loved it. It was hands down. He was just like, yeah, we're done. We're doing this. Go ahead. And so it was actually Jody who you had on as a guest and who's also my other half, my videographer, my, my (laughs) co-farmer, my, 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 major partner in life here right (laughs) he's the one who actually did all the graphic design and turned it like you know just made it a little bit more as an album cover and for john's pre-order he'd asked me to pull together like a couple things as a package and so what can also kind of help when you're when you want to photograph album covers is to find a way to make it so that you know sometimes that the band Doesn't lose out on money like if they're paying You for the photo because it's the cover photo of the Album so you know like the the Photographer does deserve to get paid for that But in a way to kind of help soften the blow uh what i did for his pre-order was i printed in the darkroom 10 8x10 prints of the original photo uh that he could sell as one tier and i also printed 25 postcard like when ilford used to make that okay. postcard paper yeah. yeah um so i made postcards so that he could you know write personalized messages to people um and especially to put download codes and then he could like mail them to europe and stuff like that and then people would get like something from the dark room and so that's um so that kind of helped for him to offset the cost you know I included that
0: right
2: and what happened a couple weeks ago that just absolutely floored me like I I'm always touched and very humbled when people like my work I know that might seem silly or a little self-deprecating but it's true you know like when I know that someone truly appreciated something I made it's really heartwarming feeling and so I was on Instagram just floating through stories and I came across a story on another friend of ours's page Mm -hmm. and so he's also a punk musician in Canada but on the side he runs like a woodworking slash farm I guess just like a mixed bag of like a side hustle kind of thing, a right. bit of hobbies that he likes to do. I know he has coffee roasting, all kinds of stuff. But anyways, this was particular to the woodworking part. He posted a f- a photo of my photo that was really? framed in a frame that he had made. Oh, wow. And I was just like, this is incredible. Like a photo I made for a friend of mine's album that was now framed by another <laughs> friend of ours. And it was just like such a touching story for me because, you know, I just couldn't believe how much, how much handiwork (laughs) went (laughs) into making this, you know, final product and yeah, I I was just blown away by it. I loved it.
1: Absolutely. And I think that is one of the things, you know, I haven't had quite that experience, (laughs) but just, you know, on one, I guess a couple of occasions that I could say I could relate. So the I live in this little small neighborhood. There's like 60 houses. And the uh the lady who drives the school bus that our son rode <laughs> to school up until he was old enough to drive himself lives in our neighborhood. And he grew up with her daughter. And so we've just been friendly and neighbors and all that over the years. And she parks the school bus right at the entrance to our neighborhood. And so when I was first getting into all of this the film photography and the darkroom printing and everything I went out there one day and took a picture of her bus for her and then made her a print of it and she she really got a kick out of that and enjoyed it I mean it wasn't a fine art masterpiece or anything but it's (laughs) the thought that counts and and so that's the part of that well there's two parts I guess to your story the the one that you mentioned is just it gives you it does give you a very nice feeling to know you know that something you made is hanging on you know a friend eager's wall and and that he actually made the frame that it's sitting in i mean that's that's pretty awesome story and then the other part of this story i guess has to do with sort of the collaborative nature the musician friend right because yeah. music is his passion and creativity and he used something that you created as well and so the two things kind of go together right we associate music with artwork that we've seen associated with it Um, so that part's cool too
2: yeah Uh, you know I love all aspects of the story and it really speaks to the whole you know, DIY ethic of the punk music scene, you know, like from Jody's band touring across, I mean the world, but especially across Canada, whenever bands come through town, we would always, always open our doors and make sure that they had a bed, uh, you know, a warm meal, uh, you know, always, uh, well, maybe not always homemade meal, but close (laughs) enough to homemade, uh, you know, like whatever they needed, whatever they wanted, they had at our place, they could take showers, uh, you know, because that's super important when you're a touring musician to feel like a bit of a normal person every once in a while. I think you can only spend so much time in a smelly van. <laughs> 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 At least I know from my perspective, that's true. But, you know, it, it really just does, does speak to the whole idea that we make all these friendships, all these connections along the way, and you never know where they're going to end up. Uh, you know, like I've even done all kinds of show photography for a lot of these bands as well. And I would always just offer to them for free, put it up on Facebook or send them the files or, you know, like I never right. asked for anything in return for for stuff like that, because that's just part of the whole community thing. And so it's really cool.
1: Right. And that is something else I wanted to ask you about is, as well. And you and you mentioned Jody and him in our previous conversation so that was episode 11 if anybody hasn't heard it uh, i would encourage you to go back and listen because jody is a great storyteller and he told a lot of those stories that kind of plays into what i wanted to ask you because you are you know uh, engaged with the film community of course that's how i originally knew you but you just mentioned this the punk community that that Jody talked about when I was chatting with him and and you were also a member of that community as well and just so what what are some of your I I guess a two-part question one kind of how did those what are maybe the similarities and differences between the punk community and the film photography community and the second part was more general I guess just kind of your perspective on being a member of any community and kind of how it helps, you know, inspire one another and the friendships you make and all that sort of stuff.
2: Well, one thing that I find interesting about all communities is there's always, you know, the similarities and the differences are... (laughs) all kind of the same in a way Uh, you know we all have those veins that run through each community Uh, so you know the punk community isn't necessarily all that different from the film community in the sense that uh, it can be super positive Uh, Mm -hmm. it can be a place where people are very helpful uh, where you know you break down and you need to crowdfund to get back home people will do it Uh, you need a place to stay people will find you know a bed for you you know, warm meals, whatever it like, you know, whatever you need, people are there for. And the film community can be very much like that. Uh, you can go online and find people you can talk to. You can ask questions. They'll answer every question. Sometimes they'll send you rolls of film just because they want to, uh, yeah. you know, or cameras, whatever. And then there's also, for sure, the more negative aspects as well. Um, yeah. There's a, There can be a lot of gatekeeping in the punk community, uh, just like there is in the film community. Uh, right. And just like there is in, in any other community, uh, you know, like even like backpacking or <laughs> biking or any of that, you know, there there are the gatekeepers. There are, you know, there are the, always the two extremes. Right. There's always, you know, I don't want to quite say left or right. I mean, in the punk community, it's maybe more left and right. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a little bit more obvious. Whereas in the film community, it's not so much necessarily like the political spectrum but there are the two opposite sides there are the people who will say one thing and then the people who will say the other thing and then kind of the people who are sort of in the middle trying to make sense (laughs) of of the two sides right um and i think that for me personally, being a part of any community, you know, I'm known for my enthusiasm.
0: Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> I'm known for for having a, a bit of a bubbly personality. We'll say. <laughs> right. But that's, that's the passion and that's the excitement that I try to inject in every community. Uh, you know, like, it's funny because some people look at me and they're like, well, you don't look like a punk rocker. And I'm like, yeah, I know I don't. And I actually kind of pride myself on that. I'm always the one trying to be... I don't want to say trying to be a little different, but you know, like I've worn white board shorts and a purple Volcom t-shirt to a show in a bar. That's like a death metal bar. And people are just like looking at me like, uh, what's she doing here? A kind of thing. Um, but I just, I, I actually just try to always inject positivity and, and energy into any community that I'm part of. Cause I think it's just nice to be our, best selves right. no matter no matter where we are no matter what we do who we are you know I try not to always it's hard but I try not to always look at the negative side sometimes I you know in my personal moments I can have times where I I will go towards the negative and try to pull myself back out with the positive and the community helps with that you know sometimes when you're when you're falling you can reach out and find that and uh, yeah so I think I think I answered your question. <laughs> Questions? I think,
1: yeah, I think so. And it was a thing I was thinking about recently. So I've mentioned before, I'd, you know, of course, I'm old enough that I grew up shooting film, but I wasn't, you know, photography wasn't really a hobby for me at that point in time. When I got interested in photography as a hobby, it was all digital. And then I came back to film, uh, at the start of the pandemic, because I had all of this time on my hands to learn how to develop and do darkroom printing and all of this stuff. And so that was part of what I was thinking about was, you know, when I was, of course, now, uh, you know, there's all of these blogs and YouTube channels and podcasts and this little community that I feel like I'm a part of. <laughs> And, it, and it's great to all of the points that you just made. But I was trying to think back when I very first started, like trying to figure out how to develop film. And, you know, I, I just Google searched it, right? And it took me to all of these other random pages that aren't really <laughs> part of what in my mind now is part of the community like i wasn't aware of 35mmc or emulsive or japan camera hunter and and really honestly before film photography i didn't watch youtube videos in general i I mean i know that's the thing people do in in all aspects of life right if you don't (laughs) if you want to learn how to do something go to youtube but
2: you could find everything on youtube
1: (laughs) that's right that's right so anyway, uh, I, all of those initial sites that uh, I went to to learn how to do all of this stuff aren't your traditional sites. But it, it occurred to me that, you know, because of the way that most people uh, do things, <laughs> uh, for people that are new to film now, you know, they are likely to go to YouTube. And if they're searching for film or whatever, they're likely to Um, come across one of your videos I I would assume at some point uh, probably sooner rather than later and and so that is you know speaking to your enthusiasm and your positivity and the way that you try to you know encourage people to get involved I, I do think that's a good thing that comes across in your videos at least from my perspective and speaks to that ambassadorship I mentioned at the very top so so kind of all of that is a long winded way to get into your sort of origin story. So before we get too far from the story you told at the top about darkroom printing, I think you've mentioned that before too, that in university taking some darkroom classes, and that was kind of how you got started. I mean, were you studying photography or was that like an elective course or just something like a student activity you could do, or how did all that come about?
2: Uh, so my parents had given me a camera when I was nine years old for my birthday, Mm -hmm. uh, just like this little Vivitar point and shoot. But I took that thing everywhere with me. Like um, there's pictures that I have from high school, uh, you know, like lunch breaks and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And I brought it even with me into college and would photograph just whatever. But I mean, I never took it seriously when I was younger. I thought, Oh, it'd be a lot of fun to be, you know, photojournalist or something. And I don't know. I just never really fell into it. And when I went to university, I'd actually taken a bit of like a we'll call it a gap two and a half years
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: before going back to university. And when I did, I actually went back in history. um okay. i did my I did my honors in history and my minor in sociology, which are pretty much. I don't want to say the same topic, but very, very similar. Uh, There's a lot of history and sociology and a lot of sociology in history. So it kind of made sense. And we had to do like these elective classes. And you had to have like one from maybe not each category, but specific categories according to the degree, like the bachelor's degree that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so one of them was in art. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not exactly the best artist. (laughs) I can't really draw. Um, I don't paint. Uh, You know, I used to play with clay, but that's not great. And then there was photography. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, you know, I haven't actually played around with my camera in a couple of years at this point. So I was like, well, why not? And one of the prerequisites, though, was to buy yourself a 35 millimeter SLR. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, cool. So I started looking one up, and I I can't remember what the model was. It was a Nikon. I think it's the F401S or something. Mm-hmm. So you can't even actually, like, modify the ISO yourself, which is good because I didn't need to in the class. But it <laughs> took me forever to understand what push and pulling meant because I couldn't do anything about it at the time. Right. But, but part of it was the darkroom. And honestly, once I hit the darkroom, I was hooked. And um I just used up all my electives taking the three photography classes I could. Uh, okay. I think the I think that at the end it didn't even count anymore towards my degree. Like <laughs> I had too many credits, but I was like, right. I just want to fill up my semester. I'm gonna do this in my last my last one. So I have something fun. Because right. by the time you hit your last year, you're burnt out, you're ready to quit, <laughs> you just want it to be over. So I was like, if I do photography, at least it's something fun to keep me motivated and keep me going. And I just totally fell in love with the darkroom. And after university, I didn't have access to the darkroom anymore, though. But I would still shoot a lot of film. Uh, By then, I had gotten Jody into film. I bought him. um, I think by then I'd gotten him like his Canon AE-1 for Christmas. Um, I don't remember if his OM-1 was me or if he bought it on his own. But I do know I got him his (laughs) K1000SE. So, yeah, he had all these cameras. I had one Nikon (laughs) and that was all I had at the time and so he was into it so we were both you know doing photography and playing around and just having it lab developed and stuff and then that's when like the digital craze hit like that's that's and everything started closing up labs were closing up stores were shifting their gear towards selling used film gear and Mm -hmm. so instead of that they were selling digital gear Um, and you know the trends started changing the world started changing a bit so, I did actually dabble in um, digital at that point. I know, okay. you're probably a bit blasphemous, <laughs> but yes, I did. I did, of course, dabble in digital. Um, but I really just didn't connect with it. Uh, you know, I, I shot a few weddings, I did a few photo shoots, I tried to do a few personal projects, but I always felt like there was just something missing. And it was in 2014 uh, that it, very slowly you started to hear an inkling of something Mm -hmm. coming back, you know, a film coming back. And so I started looking back into things and that's when I decided to get my Mamiya RB67. I just decided that that was the perfect format for me. So I jumped into it, got my camera, waited three months before I could start shooting it because I was so scared <laughs> to take a first shot. And since then, like, I've been in love with it. And I found a community darkroom at the time in the city. Mm-hmm. So I was actually able to go and do a lot of darkroom stuff. Um, unfortunately, that closed as well because it was being run at um, McGill. It wasn't part of their photography program, but uh, it was like a club on the side. And okay. they I don't know if they, like, just allowed it to be there and now they don't want it i'm not sure what exactly happened it was closed for renovations anyways um i don't know if it was the entire building or what happened because i moved out of the city so i don't actually know what happened with the darkroom at this point um Mm -hmm. so now i'm darkroomless uh (laughs) (laughs) which i really 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 miss but i'm hoping to change that very soon in the future because i think that darkroom printing for me is it was like the gateway drug back into film photography. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, it was so magical. Um, And I, you know, I know it's so cliche to say it, but it's true. When you expose that sheet of paper Mm -hmm. and you put it into that tray of developer and you're under the warm red light and I always have music playing and you can hear the ticking of that, the Gralab timer going around and you just watch this print. Magically appear, something you created magically appear. Mm -hmm. It's there's just no better feeling. Maybe maybe it's just the smell of the chemicals hitting my brain (laughs) in a certain way. (laughs) But for me, there's just no better feeling. It doesn't matter if the print doesn't turn out. It doesn't matter if my test strips led me astray, and I'm like, oh no, I need to do this or I need to do that. Like that's part of the darkroom job is just creating that perfect print and keep working at it until you get there but to just see it come to life before your eyes like I never get tired of that
1: right right no it is it that is definitely one of those magical moments that can get you hooked I think it's uh, it, once you like you said once you see that image coming up it's just it's it's a drug you just want more and more of it
2: <laughs> definitely and depending on what I'm printing I almost always have like a playlist mm-hmm. so that I'm in a certain like vibe like that's the thing is I don't actually play an instrument mm-hmm. but music has always been a huge part of my life like my parents always listen to a lot of music and when like my dad has a very extensive vinyl collection that you know I covet
0: <laughs> right
2: And uh, he'll still pull out an album every once in a while, too, which is really which is really nice. Um, But even growing up, like if TV time was over, my mom would still sometimes sneak on, you know, like uh, we had this channel called Music Plus Mm -hmm. uh, in Quebec, um, which is for the rest of Canada is like much music. And for the States is like, um, I guess MTV. Where okay. they would just play, like, music videos. There were different shows, so each host had, like, their different style of music. Um, and I still remember when, I think it was called One Two Three 2 3 Punk. I can't remember the name of the show. I think that's what it was called. When that came out, that was, like, so cool. But um, But, yeah, like, music has always been such a big part of my life that even to this day, if I'm sitting down editing photos or I'm rarely now in the darkroom, but even when I'm, uh, when I'm just developing negatives, I either have a pod, um, like a photography podcast going, or I've got Mm -hmm. a music playlist.
1: Okay. So on that, the, the punk music was that is, is that something your parents listened to, or did you have that interest yourself or did that come from Jody?
2: Um, okay, so that definitely did not come from my parents.
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> um, they, they're more, well, I don't want to call it classic rock because I feel like it's kind of, that's what it is, though. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to age anyone here, but, you know, my parents are <laughs> obviously older. Um, but they, you know, my dad loved, um, he was a big fan of Frank Zappa. That's, okay. I remember listening to that a lot growing up. Um, mm-hmm. And then my mom was, like, into the Beatles uh, right. There was a lot of Janis Joplin, uh, Jimi Hendrix,
0: mm-hmm.
2: ACDC, you know, all that stuff that was playing. And then, so here I'll age myself. I was born in 1982. Mm-hmm. I turned 40 this year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I just fell in love with 80s music at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything. Right. Uh, talking Heads, Tears for Fears, Madonna. Uh, right. <laughs> um, everything. I just mm-hmm. fell in love with it all. And I still listen to a lot of that to this day. Uh, Tina Turner. i That was my first cassette was Tina Turner's Private Dancer. That was the first cassette I bought
0: myself. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and mm-hmm. then going into the 90s, you know, I got really into Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins. Like I was more on the, like, the grunge sort right. of side of things. Um, and then there was this radio station called The Buzz that came out. I know it was I was started in the States, I think in Oregon was it Oregon or Maine I always I always mix up the Portland's I don't remember which one it is um mm-hmm. but we had it when we finally got it when I was in high school in the 90s I was like this is awesome like this is my music I'm not <laughs> listening to you know my parents music anymore Right. Um, and then like a catalyst moment though for me for punk was honestly 1994 Offspring Smash came out and mm-hmm. Green Day's Dookie And you were one or the other. You either like The Offspring or you like Green Day. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? Screw all of you. I like them both. (laughs) And and so I just, that's how I started kind of falling into it. And then along the way, I sort of went back to, I guess, maybe I hit a bit of nostalgia when I went away to college and kind Mm of went back towards my parents' music. A little okay. bit, you know. I would listen to a lot more, uh, especially Janis Joplin. That was really big in my like late teens, early twenties for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I just resonated with it in a in a right. certain way. And it was actually when my sister, so my sister's four years younger than me. So when she was 15 and I was 19, uh, my parents were gonna let her go to warp Tour with just mm-hmm. a friend, okay. another 15 year old girl. They were gonna <laughs> go just the two of them. And the night before, my sister's friend had to drop out. Her parents wouldn't let her go anymore. And I was visiting at home at the time, and my sister was heartbroken. She was right. desperate to go to Warp Tour. And my parents were like, if we pay for you, will you take her?
0: And I was <laughs> like, well,
2: okay, sure. I mean, I did – I guess I – according to my mom, I put up a bit of a fuss, but I don't think I really put up a fuss. But I, So I was like, sure. And so we went there together, and it just, like, reabsorbed me right back into the punk world, and then that was it. I just – fell back into it, uh, was buying all the albums, listening to all that stuff and so when I met Jody, it was just we just like clicked right right away because he was already in the band at the time and you know, I'm sorry but there is something about, you know, meeting a bassist in a band (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty cool (laughs) it stops being well, I, I don't think it stops being cool the guys think it stops being cool at some point but that's not true, I always I always like seeing him up on stage. Now he's a guitarist, but he still plays bass sometimes. But yeah, so then we just kind of clicked over that. He sometimes gets a little embarrassed by some of the other music that I listen to, which (laughs) makes me laugh. Um, But he's not a stickler. You know, he listens to a wide variety of music as well, because I think you have to. You have to get your inspiration from multiple different places Um, so he listens to a lot of different stuff, but for sure, uh, the punk rock definitely brought us together. And then the whole, we just kind of fell into the lifestyle together. So,
1: right. Well, and just so, and that's a good, um, segue because I wanted to, you're both creative people and I wanted to ask some about having a partner who is also creative and the way that y'all collaborate, but before we get too far off of his musical career because we talked about an album cover uh at the beginning but you also did one for his group also right or maybe you didn't do it intentionally for that but it became one of their album covers is that right yeah
2: yeah that's it um it, it's funny because it when i took that photo i had actually just left my corporate job Soul sucking kind of thing. I think <laughs> right. that, I think that I think that runs through in the punk scene a lot too. Is like we all have these corporate jobs and we're like, oh god, okay, we can't do these anymore. Right. Um, but I had quit. I was feeling a little lost. I wasn't sure where I was going because I didn't have another job lined up. I just mm-hmm. knew that it was time to leave that one and figure myself out afterwards. And we were actually going to go and visit my parents later that afternoon. But in the morning, he had band practice and. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to kind of wander around the city and I'll come and meet up with you at your locale after and we'll we'll head over to my parents' place. And so I'm just wandering through what was my, well, what is my favorite part of the city, Montreal's old port. And I don't know, like I said, I was feeling lost and I just decided out of nowhere to go and sit down in this one little park. And I'm watching these zip liners go across. hmm and I was like, well, that's kind of neat. I'm like, if I get it just right, because there's still like the scene of like the whole like little market that they have along the old port and everything down below. And I was like, if I get it just right and I wait for two people to go at the same time, because sometimes there'd be just one that would go. Right. But if I wait for two people, it'll, it, you know, with a little separation, it might be kind of cool. And so I took the photo and I was like, oh, this is so cool. This is so cool. And. At the end of the day, of course, Jody asked me, you know, how was how was your day? How was the shoot? Did you get some good stuff? He always asked me, you know, if I felt a specific image was going to be really good or whatever. And this one I kept secret. This one I was there was just something in it. I was like, this mm. one I'm keeping to myself. And I was like, Yeah, it was a good day. It was fine. Right. And so we went to the uh, we went to the dark room because we would work in the dark room a lot together too, because he was just fascinated by the process <laughs> as much as I was. Right. And I developed that role of film. And he always loved putting the negatives down on the light box and like looking at them through the loop. And when he came up to that one, he was like, oh, my God, do you know what you have here?
0: And I was like,
2: (laughs) a big smile just appeared on my face. And I knew which one he was talking about, but I decided to play dumb. And I was like, what are you talking about? Which one are you looking at? He's like, come (laughs) on. He's like you know which one I'm talking about. He was like <laughs> this one and he pointed that specific photo out. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I thought I thought maybe that one would turn out. And he was like, well this is our album cover. Oh,
0: and like wow. they had
2: already they had already had a concept, they had everything already, maybe not quite figured out, but they knew what direction they wanted to go in. And then all of a sudden with that photo, the the whole band fell in love with it and it was they just changed directions completely. Right. And uh, and went with that photo. Uh, so that was, that was pretty cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Very much so. And, and sort of the other kind of story uh, at the music, at the intersection of music and photography was the year that you spent doing your festival photography. And, and, you know, when I've talked to everybody, I always like to ask them kind of what their local scene is like, And apparently Montreal, not just musical festivals, but festivals in general uh, must be a pretty, Montreal must be a pretty active city because you, uh, well, you can tell us about the whole project. (laughs) But in the end, in a year, you ended up covering 225 festivals, but you didn't even touch everything. So apparently a lot going on in Montreal, right?
2: Oh, my God. Montreal is full. I mean... You know, I'd always heard it being called the city of festivals,
0: mm-hmm.
2: festival city, whatever, however, because sometimes the French translation can be a little off. But, you know, I'd always heard that. And. I was like, yeah, OK, we have big ones, you know, we have Jazz Fest, we have uh, Just for Laughs Festival, we've got Oceania, um, we've got a heavy metal fest called Heavy MTL, which is relatively large, um, you know, like we we have like the usual ones. Right. But I was like, what if I dive deep into as many festivals as possible? And I had no idea. I literally had no idea that there were that many different festivals. Mm -hmm. And to have hit 225, I was like, wow. And like I said, I didn't even get them all. Uh, sometimes, especially in the summer months, my weeks were so packed. I could be doing as many as seven to 10 festivals in one week or five okay. in a weekend. Uh, I was <laughs> running from place to place all the time. Um, so some of them ended. I ended up not being able to go to just because of you know schedule conflicts. Right. And, so oh, I can't even imagine how many there actually are in a year, uh, and maybe some that I might have missed out on if they were pretty underground. Mm-hmm. Um, I found puppet festivals. <laughs> right. <laughs> th- so I'm at a puppet festival, mm-hmm. watching like this this theater piece, and Jody and I leave the theater. We go outside and we stumble across an off puppet festival (laughs) i'm like what like it's it's they were like loosely related but it was like the people who couldn't get the indoor venue right decided to do shows outdoors in the middle of winter (laughs) and i was just like this this is so weird um but there was all kinds of stuff foods oh my goodness montreal is definitely a food city Uh, Mm and there were so many different uh festivals for that there was a puts in festival um Mm -hmm. that happens every year that one was actually I love poutine. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm from Quebec, born and raised. Poutine is like food of the gods for us here. Or something. <laughs> but even there, just the smell of the like deep fried potatoes, mm-hmm. it's it was like the cement was breathing. <laughs> this, <laughs> this fried potato air or something it was like emanating it 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 was it that got a little much for me uh to be honest um but i still love puts in so it didn't ruin (laughs) it for me but yeah there's just so many different kinds of festivals and of course there were a lot of music festivals right and um you know i went i tried to go to as many of them as i could uh i don't know i must have missed some but i did as much as i could for sure one of my favorite ones though is this one called fatale fest right and this is okay this is so hard to explain because it's like such an anomaly (laughs) in 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 montreal so it was sort of half secret like Mm -hmm. the location was never really said where it was but if you knew then you knew kind of thing but this place was kind of like a weird mix between like mad max meets warp tour and, like, the worlds would collide. And it was interesting, we'll say. <laughs> um, so the area is it used to be like these old industrial buildings in Montreal, like the brick, huge um, you know, style buildings where I don't even know what was made there. Um, but it was all in the industry at the time right. And uh, of course, you know, with gentrification, They ended up being turned into loft style apartment condo things. Um, And one side is like super high end. I mean, you look out, you look at the building outside, and you're like, there's no way there's high end lofts here because there's like graffiti everywhere. Uh, You know, they don't look very well kept. But when you see the apartments on the inside, they're really beautiful. Um, But on the other side, it's still this like almost squat like kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. Like there's weird little venues there. And it's it's where you know a lot of like the gutter punk crust punk people live and anyways this festival was like in the courtyard in the middle of this whole building and like they would make a hot tub out of a the back of a pickup truck (laughs) you know dogs were allowed to roam free which is great i love dogs but you know they could roam free there was just people everywhere and but at night was when he oddly when the magic would happen, when the musicians would hit the stage and mm-hmm. the area was lit up by one light bulb. Like someone <laughs> took a lamp, took the light shade off of it and just set this one little light bulb on the stage. And like that was it. Right. And so extremely difficult to photograph. Sure. Because <laughs> it's dark and I was shooting film. I, I did the whole project on film, the whole thing was shot on Agfa Vista 400. And uh, so for the night or indoor stuff, I would obviously push to uh, 1600. But I was shooting with my Canon F1, I had the 50 millimeter f1.4 lens mm-hmm. on so I was shooting at 1.4. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what my shutter speed was, but it wasn't very fast, maybe, maybe even down to 130th. Mm-hmm. Um I was, I was definitely struggling, but I was like, I'm going to put myself at the only place where there's light. I'm in the pit (laughs) right at the front and people are just pushing and shoving, of course, because it's, you know, a mosh pit. Um, But what's really nice about a lot of punk festivals is, and this doesn't happen always, but you know, there's still, there's still a lot of like sexism that can run through the punk community. But generally when a woman's in a pit, Mm -hmm. There, I wouldn't say you know hands off, but it's like <laughs> you know they make sure that she's okay. Right. If, if she falls, they make sure to pick her up. I mean, they pick everyone up, right. but you know they're they're it's it they are somewhat you know a little bit more careful almost when when there's a woman in in the pit, which is right. you know I don't need special treatment, but that's really cool because when I'm standing there with a camera, I don't really want to be pushed around too much <laughs> either. Right. Um. But so I'm trying to just capture the chaos of the pit and there's this one guy and he's in there he's got his bottle of wine in his hand (laughs) like he's not even drinking beer he's just drinking wine right from the bottle and he sees me and so he sets himself up and he's just got this look and he's like full of like rage and he's just screaming into my lens and he, Mm -hmm. he he like fills this whole frame almost and right after it was done He just stops. He looks at me. He gives me a big smile and a thumbs up just to make sure I'd actually gotten the shot. Because otherwise, he would have done it all over again for me. And I remember developing that role and looking at that photo and thinking at the time, like, darn it, I actually missed focus slightly. You know, it's, it's kind of more soft focus. Cause I was at shooting at 1.4, 1 30th or 1 60th of a second. So I, you know, I was, I was really disappointed. And then I realized after I'm like, no, actually I think that's one of my favorite photos from the whole year,
0: just because
2: <laughs> it conveys like that motion, that movement and, and his, his, well, I guess it was anger at the time, like just with the music, you know, his energy, right. really. not anger, but his, his just super energetic vibe. Right, and I felt like it actually fully captured that, and so that was that was super cool.
1: Absolutely, and it is—it's an awesome picture for uh, multiple reasons, I guess. In the larger context of festivals, I mean, I think it captures sort of the vibe, right? Yeah, and then just you know, as as an image separate and apart from festivals, I mean what's so cool about it is a connection between you as the photographer and your subject. Yeah. And so I thought maybe this was a good opportunity to sort of talk some about the YouTube stuff, because you spent a year covering 225 festivals, and they're all different, you know, they're all celebrating, whether it's music or puppets or food or whatever it may be. So there's that part of it. There's also the people part of it. There's connecting with people like the story you just told. But nowadays, <laughs> and as we speak, I think your two most recent videos are for Polaroid Week and Holga Week. Yeah. And the images you're out making are out in nature. <laughs> there's, not, yeah. there's not a festival going on. There aren't people around. You aren't making a human connection with your subject matter but this is a lot of the sort of photography that you do that that I'm more familiar with in recent years is the nature stuff and I know that you enjoy that as well too but I thought maybe I, you could tell us a little bit about that contrast between and you mentioned, you know, even earlier when you were getting into photography doing weddings and so the sort of photography that involves people or capturing an event or something like that versus you know, being in a peaceful environment and capturing nature and that sort of thing and kind of what you get out of those two different sorts of photography.
2: So for me, um, I would say I've always been attracted to nature. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like growing up, my family had, uh, it it wasn't a working farm anymore, but we had like 100 acres that my sister and I could go and run around on that was like woods and stuff. So I've always kind of had that in my life, um, mm-hmm. that that connection with nature. And when I bought the RB67 back in 2014, my first shots were in the woods. Okay. Um, that was just right away where I started. And at first I had a really hard time photographing the woods and nature because it can be really chaotic and it's hard to kind of decipher or find your subjects or isolate and whatnot so I did struggle for a little while and so then when I moved to the city I was kind of doing more I I don't know if I could really call it street photography because I would go out like late at night when no one was on the streets (laughs) (laughs) in the rain or you know I'd go to like maybe less populated places like like honestly photographing people scared the crap out of me and so you know I don't even completely understand what compelled me to actually do festival because I don't really photograph people like I don't even it it sucks to say but I don't even photograph my own family which you know I'd like to do more of you know especially them like they know me and they trust me and they're not going to yell at me but I just I you know for me people I've always just been kind of scared of and festival I managed to get through it. I got through the whole year. <laughs> I connected which was really awesome and then I was like, okay, cool. I'm done. I'm going back into the woods now.
0: <laughs> right.
2: And um and then for sure once the pandemic hit, we moved to the farm full time because we had to be here to help take care of Jody's parents uh who right. were both in their 70s. Um at the time Quebec had a lot of very um what's the word I'm looking for? Like harsh restrictions, maybe not mm-hmm. harsh. Uh, That's the wrong word, but just a lot of restrictions. Uh, So those who are 70 and over were, it was highly suggested that they don't go out and do their own groceries and, and whatnot. Uh, Cause right. this was right at the beginning. We had no idea what was going on, what was happening and stuff. So Jody and I were like, okay, we've got to move out of the city. It kind of, it was going to happen anyways that we were going to move mm-hmm. out of the city. We were uh just, You know, we were paying rent basically for like four months out of the year, just so that we could go back to our corporate jobs in the city over the winter and then come back to the farm over the summer. So it all kind of coincided anyways. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: But then also just the, I I guess the isolation, because not only are you already isolated in the country, uh, you know, with a pandemic on top of it, we weren't really going anywhere. We would go to Montreal to do our deliveries. Uh, but then we'd just come back to the country. And so I started walking around the farm a lot more uh, and in the woods and just really immersing myself even more into that kind of photography. So I barely photograph people these days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm way more comfortable with trees like like I said, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to talk back to me. They're not going to be like, no, no, that's not my good side.
0: Right.
2: (laughs) You know, they just, they just, they just stand there and they present their best selves to me so that I'm able to capture their portrait or, you know, and since immersing myself even more into nature, I understand a lot more of how it, how it kind of wants to work around humans Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, how, I can now like embrace the chaos a lot more. I don't see it as chaos. I just see it as a whole. I see the woods, you know, I won't spot out necessarily individual trees as much anymore. Um, Sometimes I still do, but, you know, I have started kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, let's look at the woods as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, Or sometimes I started looking at like other uh, aspects, you know, like little mushrooms or the way leaves fall or the mosses that grow the ferns um you know fiddleheads are one of my favorite subjects to photograph in the spring uh, which if you don't know what fiddleheads are they're just like the the baby fern like as it's starting right. to grow it starts like all curled up mm-hmm. and then unfurls into the big beautiful ferns that you know line the carpet like the carpet the uh forest floor and uh so i just i guess i just kind of got m- much more of an appreciation for all of that throughout the years so i don't know if i could go back and do <laughs> like people photography again like festival like i've i've talked about kind of doing some of it and i did mm-hmm. i did do one video where i went to a punk festival called 77 fest okay. um and photographed that and that was pretty cool but yeah, I don't know. I, I think I would have a hard time again to start doing that again at first. And maybe I'd get back into it because I'm, you know, I am a photographer. Yeah, right. But, but you know, I, I like my trees.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, uh, so one of the things I wanted to ask about the farm, and this was, uh, again, I'm going to be rambly here for a minute, but <laughs> for anybody who hasn't, also watched uh jody's farming channel jody farms i I would encourage you to go back and and watch that but one of the themes so there were three seasons i think that he did is that right Yeah, yeah so one of the themes that pops up every year were the blueberries yeah and he mentions probably I think maybe in season three i don't know you you can correct me but there's a reason i'm asking this and it's about photography on a farm in a in a big sense and then on a smaller sense it's also about collaboration and making and and working together but at some point so the the background is growing blueberries and this was something on his family farm they had done in the past And he was wanting to revive that as a focus area on the farm. And they were still producing blueberries, but I guess, do you call it a bush or a tree or what do you call the plant that grows the blueberries? They're bushes. Okay, bushes. So the situation was that the bushes were producing blueberries, but they had become unwieldy over the years and the plants were having to sustain these branches that were producing fruit but the bush was having to you know invest resources and energy into keeping those limbs alive when Jody had the idea if he trimmed these that it would help the plant grow new more fruit bearing limbs and branches and and that's sort of a hard decision to make because you don't want to cut off something that is producing right Mm-hmm. But it's a, a bigger, longer term vision to be able to see, well, if you cut those off, the plant can thrive more. So <laughs> that's sort of the background of the story.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the, the, the questions I had, I guess, were about photography on a farm, because one of the things I think you talked about in the past was you know, which is also one of the seasons of his channel. There was a big drought. And, of course, film photography involves, you know, needing water for development or darkroom printing or other stuff you might need to do. And, of course, if you're having to conserve water for the farm, you can't really invest water into your film photography.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: those are tough decisions you have to compromise and make decisions on sort of like the blueberries. Um but also working on a farm of course involves uh long hard hours during (laughs) during the busy season when you maybe would like to be out shooting but you can't because you've got to work on the farm the sort of flip side to that is that you're doing very important good work you know where would we be without our farmers and to the point you made about being out in the woods you you do have all of this time out in nature which if you're a nature photography, seems like it would be a pretty awesome thing. So where I'm going with all of this is talk some about being a photographer, but also living and working on a farm.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it is definitely a hard choice that can happen at times. Um, You know, when we do have a drought, you know, we have the one well that runs Jody's parents' house uh, runs the and runs the entire farm, so you know all of our greenhouses where we have to water plants, um, especially at the beginning of the season twice a day. Uh, but even throughout, some of our plants are more tropical, so they like a they like more water and stuff. Um, and we also have fig trees, and they require a lot of water. Um, and then, out in the fields you know, we, a long time ago, we used to have an irrigation system and things happened over the years. And so it wasn't, we weren't able to work it anymore. We had to get a new one. But the first year that we had a drought, we just thought it was an anomaly and we'll get through it. But we were watching our plants that we had just planted, like literally die. And, you know, you feel, you definitely feel some guilt. You know, at some point, some of them will survive. Some are going to be okay. But to just see them struggling when you have the power to actually do something about it, you do whatever you can. So we were literally trucking water out to the fields and watering, you know, acre large fields by hand, uh, twice a day. And so not only was that just so time consuming, cause we would try to get into the fields before the sun would rise. Cause once the sun hits the plants, if there's water on the leaves, it could possibly burn the plants. Right. And so then causing more damage, which we wanted to try to avoid, because, you know, watering's only so good by hand, you're trying not to hit the leaves, but sometimes it happens. Um, and then we'd also be watering later in the evening, once the sun had gone down, at uh, which, right. you know, comes summer, the sun setting much later than, you know, than in the winter. Uh, so it made for extremely long days, but it also made for a lot of water consumption. And mm-hmm. You know, while ours is well water, we're not uh, dependent on city or anything like that. Eventually, the wa- the well can run dry. Right. And so between running the household, running the farm, you know, doing laundry, even little things like doing the dishes every day, showering, stuff like that, you know, we had to start kind of thinking, like, where can we sort of slow down? And, of course, film development is the first one to go. Right. Um because in the moment I just don't always have time for it to begin with whether I'm even actually able to shoot during that time uh, or not you know it's it it's still long days so I don't really feel like developing film you know at 4 a.m or you know <laughs> right. 9 30 at night <laughs> and by then I'm like okay I'm done guys <laughs> um but yeah so that that is you know sometimes a bit of a Maybe not heartbreaking decision because it's actually kind of easy in the moment, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but later on, you know, you kind of feel like, oh darn, like I'm missing out on that creative side, right? Um, and you know, sometimes, sometimes farming does allow me a lot of freedom. Uh, sometimes it's too wet in the morning to start manipulating the plants. So mm-hmm. harvesting happens a little bit later. So I can go out into the woods with a camera for a couple of hours in the morning. And, you know, like, that's really, that's really wonderful. Um, I do try to actually carry a camera with me at all times mm-hmm. uh, when I'm on the farm. Um, but usually, like, I'll say at the beginning of the season, okay, I'm doing this, and I do it and I take pictures and it's going great. And then next thing I know it's just like, I just don't do it anymore. <laughs> it's like two <laughs> days later I'm like, no, I'm done with this. um I, I, I can't the the camera's annoying. it's on my belt loop. it bugs me or you know, I come up with whatever excuse and I stop doing it. Um, right. but also because when you're actually doing the work, like it's really hard for me to photograph myself doing the work <laughs> while you know and doing photography. it's like I can't cut plants with one hand. and photograph with the other you know kind of thing um and we don't always work together like it's just me jody and his mom that that work the farm uh so we're not always working together either sometimes we're spread out in different fields um so it's kind of hard to to actually capture what it is to do farm work Mm-hmm. Um, you know what it looks like, especially because we're not really your traditional kind of farm. Uh, right. We're an organic tea farm, so we deal with we deal with plants, not animals. Or you know, no. Well, we do have oats, but we don't have grains really. Um, right. Everything is just different kinds of plants for for tea, and so it's really hard to convey what the farm is like to a lot of people, and it's it's really hard to take time out to show that on video as well. Like even right. when Jody was doing like the, the reason why Jody stopped after season three uh, was because it was just too much. Like the work right. wasn't getting done or it was, <laughs> but we were slower because it right. was like we had to set up for the shoots and there were a lot of retakes and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, and then he started relying, like at first he relied only on himself for filming towards towards season three I was filming a little bit more of it like I would do a lot of the slow motion stuff um and sometimes I would set up the shot you know like the ones of him like walking away or driving away so he wouldn't have to like come back and get his camera after (laughs) I would be the one to do those but then you're taking two people out of the field (laughs) right Right. you know so when you take two out of three away from from doing the work then that's even even harder to do um you know so it's it is ultimately really rewarding i'm working outside all day long so i do think mm-hmm. that a lot of my appreciation for nature comes from that from right. watching plants grow how they do what they like you know every year something's different one year uh some plants can do really really well and you're like great i'm going to do the exact same thing next year and then just because the weather conditions change slightly it doesn't turn out and you're like but i did the same thing i did last year how come it didn't turn out but It, you know, that's, that's what farming and gardening and, and nature is like, it will always do what it wants to do (laughs) and you get what you get and you have to deal with that.
1: (laughs) So the second part of the question was just what I teased earlier about you and Jody and the way that you work together and collaborate and share these interests. There are some couples active in the film community that we know, like, um, Julie and Mario Piper on the Gen X Photography Podcast, for example. But other times it might just be one person who's into music or photography, and hopefully they're supportive and these creative outlets aren't a point of contention. Um, But as we've talked about, the music and photography and YouTube and even working on the farm, it's been you and Jody helping one another out. So could you talk a little bit about that situation and having a partner that shares these interests and a little bit uh, about what that's like from your perspective?
2: Well, it's funny because so we've been together for 17 years. Um okay. And we met when I was 22, and he was 24. And from the beginning, like, I think we'd been together for just a few months, and we were already living together. It was kind of circumstantial, like he was moving back to like, I lived in a smaller town called Sherbrooke, uh, Mm because I was going to university there. And he was living in Montreal, Um, And so he was kind of moving back to Sherbrooke, because that's where the band was, too. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was tired of doing the back and forth every weekend for practices and stuff. Um, And so until he found an apartment, he kind of moved in with me. And then... I started not getting along with my roommate, so I moved in with him and, you know, so on, so on. And then we ended up just pretty much living together. And we always, you know, from the beginning, we kind of fought the codependence. Like, we were like, (laughs) no, we need to have our own things and stuff. But I honestly, from the get-go, I think we were, you know, meant to be intertwined right (laughs) in pretty much every aspect like even the band that should technically be his thing but Mm -hmm. i was always there selling merch um at shows you know doing the door doing photography doing promo shots for them uh for newspapers and stuff um even going along for shows you know and then that kind of evolved into us being on the farm more and as i learned things i got more involved there and so now we're we literally collaborate on that um and then he started learning more you know video and and editing and stuff and yeah we just kind of we just all we're always like parallel and intertwined with each other we collaborate on like everything together um which is which is really really awesome Mm -hmm. to have been able to find a partner in which I can you know do all of this with um that you know sometimes I can be trying to get something out like trying to come up with a good concept and he just gets it and he runs with it and we're like yes yes and you know running ideas back and forth Mm -hmm. and at the same time sometimes it can be so frustrating I don't know if he (laughs) sees it that way but I know that sometimes I get frustrated because um Sometimes my vision isn't quite what his vision is, you know, like the, every now and right. then we're just slightly off track. Um but for the most part we're 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 just very intertwined in all of it. Um, but I mean, of course, we each have our own opinions and stuff like that, too. It's right. normal. We're different people. Um, we sometimes act like one person, but <laughs> we are different <laughs> people um, but yeah, it's 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 really great to have that person with you, you know, like, It always made us laugh when we would see um, people who are in a relationship and like she's the photographer and he'd be like, oh, I'm so proud of my photographer wife. And, you know, like (laughs) you'd see how like the worst critic was always like your significant other because they just love everything you do. Um, And in some ways, it's really funny because Jody and I are both our like best critics and our worst critics in the sense like worst in the sense that we love everything. But Mm -hmm. best in the sense that we're totally honest with each other, too. Like if something's a little off or, you know, something just doesn't quite look right, we correct. Well, not correct each other, but, you know, we'll we'll guide each other um, in that sense. Uh, So we do critique each other's work a lot. So I also have a wonderful critiquer
0: (laughs) who helps
2: helps me when I'm putting things out, you know, Um, because sometimes you can also get so emotionally involved in your work. Mm -hmm. That you can't separate yourself from that. You know, like there are some photos that I just absolutely adore. And he's like, I don't know about that. And I'll post it anyways. And as it turns out, he was right. Or sometimes, sometimes though, sometimes that feeling is like, is there. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm posting it anyways. And it does like fantastically. So it also just depends on what other people think. But, you know, we are there to kind of bounce off of each other um which which really does help in all of our creative pursuits um, absolutely, I mean, we've even actually done a photo project together where we went we went to a music festival, um, <laughs> sort of a I don't know if it I don't know if I could quite call it punk because it was kind of like punk, alternative metal, like a pretty big mix of bands. um right. there were there were um some like pop punk bands like jimmy world was playing and then there was celtic Mm -hmm. punk with flogging molly um and then i'm trying to remember all the bands there were so many it was a three-day weekend and i mean there was tenacious d weezer was there (laughs) uh you know um and then there was also like some death metal stuff um yeah i can't even remember all the bands at this point but there were there was just a bunch of different ones and jody really wanted to go to the festival and photograph it Mm -hmm. Because he was super inspired after the festival stuff where I was in the pit and photographing like the people enjoying the music rather than the musicians on the stage. And so I signed us up to see if we could get free passes because it wasn't cheap. (laughs) And we were broke at the time. And so we won free passes. Um, I think they were probably given to us just because I hadn't actually bought any passes. And they were like just these are like promo, just give them away. Like it's fine. But anyways, we, we got to go and we spent three days in this town. That's normally a population of like 600 people. Mm -hmm. And, for this weekend, I, there was like 400,000 people.
0: Oh,
2: in wow. The town. It, it was total debauchery. Um, there were cops there, but pretty much just to make sure if anyone got hurt, they could help them out more mm-hmm. than like trying to control anything. Because at that point, there is no control. Um, but it was just it was so fantastic. We spent the three days in the pit, both of us shooting film cameras. Um both of trying to stay away from each other so that we wouldn't keep getting each other in in our shots
0: (laughs) because every now and
2: every now and then you know i get like a really cool shot and I'm like oh there you are walking by in the background and you know and vice versa (laughs) (laughs) which is really funny um but you know like and that's something that we're we're probably going to turn into a book at some point because we actually went I don't know if I mentioned the name of the festival It's called rock fest. Okay. Um, but we went to the last edition of the official, like the actual rock fest as it was uh, mm-hmm. since then um, they had like a bunch of financial difficulties and kind of shut down and have sort of restructured, but it's something different now. Right. Uh, so we went to the actual like last official edition of rock fest and so I think we're probably going to turn it into a book. So we really do collaborate on like so many different levels, right? Um, and it's amazing to have that inspiration and also that motivation, because if left to my own devices, a lot of times I'd be like, Nah, I just don't feel like it today. And he's like, Oh, come on, come on, come on! You gotta go out. You gotta go out. <laughs> we gotta film this video, or you gotta shoot for for this, or you you know, and vice versa. Um, right. he does a lot less photography now that he films, <laughs> <my> YouTube <laughs> <panel>. Whoops! <laughs> you know, like we go to like cool locations and he's like, just filming me. He doesn't have time to do his own photography, right. um, which I do feel a little guilty about. So I think eventually we're going to kind of shift that again too, so that he can get some stuff done. Right. Um, but yeah, we, we've literally been collaborating from the beginning and I think we will keep doing it until the end. <laughs>
1: So you mentioned Weezer, and that brings me to my next question, which is about hockey. I know that may seem like a strange transition, but hockey fans will know that there's this big annual outdoor game on New Year's Day called the Winter Classic. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go see Chicago and Boston play in the 2019 game, and Weezer was there performing. So that's that connection. And, and just apologies to any of the listeners who may not be hockey uh, fans or sports fans for the next few minutes. But I did want to ask you about the Montreal Canadiens. I think one of our first interactions on social media was about hockey. Um, maybe you had put in your bio that you were a fan. And the Canadiens have been one of the most successful franchises in the history of the NHL. Of course, I live in the American South, and most of us do not grow up playing hockey. But I did become a fan of hockey by going to a game in Nashville. And for anybody who doesn't know, this has been kind of a controversial move by the NHL to put teams in these non-traditional markets like Miami or Tampa or the Carolinas or Dallas. And Nashville is one of those and Atlanta had two teams (laughs) and despite Atlanta being this huge city with a large transplant population um, both teams ultimately failed due to lack of support and the franchises moved back to Canada and Nashville is a non-traditional hockey market who was struggling uh, at the time that I started going to games back in um, 28 Uh, 2008 or 2009. And they've since gotten better and even made it to the Stanley Cup Finals a few years ago, although they didn't win. Um, But my experience of being a hockey fan is not as a fan of a long-time, traditionally successful team. It is going to games where people might be wearing cowboy hats or throwing catfish on the ice. And the goal song is a Tim McGraw song. Um, By contrast, the sport that is very popular where I live is American college football. And one of the local teams is one of the most, if not the most, successful team in that sport. So I do have some experience with people who are fanatical about following a team, um, almost on like a religious level. Um, but since we share this enjoyment of hockey, I just wanted to get your perspective on growing up as a fan of the, of, of an iconic hockey team.
2: Well, so, I, you know, like I mentioned, I was born in 1982. So I grew up in right. a time when there was still the big rivalry. Like we still had the, um, the Quebec Nordiques as mm-hmm. well as the Montreal Canadiens. And so that was a huge rivalry back then. Um, right. It was almost... So I don't, if if you're at all familiar with Quebec politics, um, I'm not going to go very far into them because it's just a really long story. I don't think we have time for that today, right. um, but there, there have been tensions over the years between the French and the English, and it was almost like um, Montreal and Quebec were the symbols of that through hockey. You know, okay. so that's why, like, the rivalry was super intense. Um, but, I mean, then again, Montreal also has super intense rival- rivalries with, you know, Toronto, Maple Leafs, uh, Boston Bruins. Oh, don't even get right. me started on Boston, but anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. You know, so there, there's there's a lot of history uh, behind the Montreal Canadiens, which is part of what I love so much about the game and about the team is just that that crazy history. Mm-hmm. um but also you know growing up in Quebec uh my dad was he played hockey when he was young so he was a big time fan you know we would gather around like my grandparents used to have one of those old wood TVs like the ones that sat on the the floor and it was mm-hmm. like a wood box around the TV and y- you didn't have a remote you know Right. and we would we would gather around that every Saturday night we would have hamburgers for supper and we would watch hockey night in Canada right. uh, and back then It was most often um, between Montreal and Toronto or Boston, Mm -hmm. like more of the rivalry games because those were bigger for Saturday nights. But even then it would be other teams too. Um, And so it was always kind of there. When I was younger, I honestly didn't pay as much attention to hockey. Um, Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was just a young girl (laughs) with my little teeny bopper magazines and stuff like that. So I, I didn't pay as much attention, but growing up, you know, it was always kind of there. And so, as I got older, I really started to appreciate it, especially once I started going to games. I think that that's what draws people into anything. Like we used to go to a lot of baseball games when I was a kid, so I was a bigger baseball fan than I was hockey. Um, and my favorite team when I, when it was baseball was actually the Atlanta Braves, ok. <laughs> I have no idea why I can I don't even know why I just that was my team. I love the Expos, but, the Atlanta right. Braves were, were my secret, uh, <laughs> my, my guilty pleasure team, um, right. but but then you know later on with hockey, then I threw all that passion <laughs> behind <laughs> hockey, and even more right. so. And I think it's I think it's the going to games, like just mm-hmm. to be in that crowd, to to feel the cool air from the ice and the excitement and tension as it builds up, and especially now that they do like all these crazy pregame shows. Uh, you know to really build up the crowd and get the excitement and the cheering going and whether you want it to or not it's going to affect you it's 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 going to make your blood pulse and you know and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you're just (laughs) going to you know start cheering and everything Um, but even at home you know I love to watch I still love to watch the game and it is really interesting to be a fan Mm -hmm. of such a storied franchise because The people who hate Montreal like really hate Montreal. Um, I remember there was a campaign. uh, This was probably about ten years ago, and Mm -hmm. it was done by the Islanders because so many Montreal because New York is relatively close uh, to Montreal, so a lot of Montreal fans would go down for games, and so they had this policy that said no Habs, no, (laughs) because they didn't want Habs fans going down, (laughs) and um, you know because we're we're notoriously um enthusiastic we'll say
0: right <laughs> but wherever
2: we go uh you know like i i know that we are like our fan base can fill up the stadiums in tampa and stuff because we also have a lot of people who you know the snowbirds who go down south for the right. winter uh so they're at the hockey games a lot um but the one town i will never ever ever go back to mm-hmm. for a game would be boston and um that's yeah or at least just not wearing my jersey boston itself is a beautiful city and i'm sure the people are absolutely wonderful um just not during the hockey playoffs (laughs) 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 and don't don't wear a jersey another jersey other than boston when you're there um they don't look quite so kindly on that. (laughs) right (laughs) um but but you know like yeah i I can understand to an extent the the hate that Montreal can get Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, we've won 24 Stanley Cups in in our history, which is the most that any team has won. Um, And we've had just such amazing players, you know, like Maurice Richard and Jean Beliveau and Guy Lafleur. Uh, you know, like the list goes on and on. We've had so many, and even now we still have some really great players. Like Carry Price is one of my favorite goalies of right. all time. Um, yeah. you know, he's he's just fantastic. And I totally forgot where I was going with that. I'm so sorry. I <laughs> <laughs> <Just, just, laughs> started talking about all the all the players. Um, but yeah, like there's right. just so much history there, and so so many great players, so many so many good moments so many of those heartwarming moments that it's hard to not get caught up in that um there's even actually at the university of montreal there's a professor who does a course on the religion of the montreal canadians because because the fans are just so into it like we have sometimes certain rituals that we'll do before a game or after a game for good luck um or during the playoffs um like even my dad Wherever during the playoffs, wherever you are in the house when Montreal scores their first goal, that's right. where you stay. Make sure <laughs> that they win. So if you're in the washroom, well, too bad. You're you better have a radio with you, yeah. so you can listen to the game. Right.
0: <laughs> um,
2: but you know, like we ha- we do have a lot of these superstitions involved, mm-hmm. and so this one professor kind of like studies the people and how okay. we how we think how we do things how and how we're completely normal outside of (laughs) outside of our hockey fandom but you know like when you're devoted to the Montreal Canadiens you're just blindly devoted you love them no matter what they can suck so bad and you're not going to care because it's the Montreal Canadiens
1: so as we're recording the season has just started do you have any bold predictions for the hockey season it doesn't have to be specifically about Montreal just in general
2: uh, okay. Well, I don't know if I have like a prediction mm-hmm. per se or anything like that, but I do have a, a hope. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't want to jinx anything. I don't want to <laughs> jinx anyone. So really? please no one blame it on me if this doesn't happen <laughs> uh, because I said it and I've jinxed the team. But what I really want to see this year is I want to see Carrie Price come back full, full on in perfect, you know, in good health um, and win that Stanley Cup because that's what I want for him more than anything. He has poured his heart and soul into the team and so I want to see him win that Cup.
1: Well, that would be good. I can definitely get behind that. When my son played, he was the goalie and I'm sure some people would say goalies get more credit when the team does well than they deserve, but for sure they get more blame when the when the team struggles. So I can definitely get behind Uh wishing a good season for, for a goalie. Uh, but turning the conversation back to photography so that the non-hockey fans listeners can re-engage with the podcast. Just, uh, what, what is next for you? I see you've gotten, uh, intrepid four by five is, is that the next focus area or just, yeah, what, what all do you have going on and, and planned for the near future?
2: Oh, I always have so many ideas in my head um but definitely large format is going to be making a pretty big appearance in my photography life and as well as my youtube um I have a i do have a video filmed uh I'm not sure at what point this is gonna be coming out, so I don't know if the video will already be out by then or or not, but I'm not really giving away any secrets of course, I'm gonna be doing video with an intrepid camera um and I guess the other little teaser I'll give is that I will be shooting my fall series. Mostly. I don't know if only on the intrepid, you know, it depends on how the story evolves. I kind of let the season happen before I, you know, make concrete decisions, but um, so far it's definitely going to be featured very heavily in my fall series, which I'm really looking forward to because I feel that four by five and the work I do in the woods would just complement each other so well, um, you know, like that larger. I'm just so excited to see my favorite trees on that larger negative, <laughs> um, and see the details that I'm able to pull out of it. So I'm definitely really excited about that. Um, but I, you know, I I always have tons of ideas and mm-hmm. never quite enough time to actually do them all. Right. But that. the beauty of ideas is you get to sit on them. You get to let them marinate a little. You get to think about it. You get to say why it won't work out now, but maybe it'll work out later. And so you can always revive old ideas later. Sometimes some ideas are bad ideas and you just don't do them. But, um, you know, like being able to have that time and so many ideas at once, um, you know, I can, I, I, I think I've got content for, Quite a few years at this point. I mean, photography will definitely always be something that I do, no matter what. Uh, you know, YouTube is really just kind of my vehicle to connect more with the community at large, um, mm-hmm. to kind of show what I'm doing, and also to encourage others to just get out there with whatever camera they want. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be film. I shoot film but that doesn't mean that I would stop someone from shooting a digital camera or on their iPhone or anything like that. And even if I use mainly, you know, medium format or large format, I have nothing against 35 millimeter. Um, You know, all film is good in in my mind. Uh, Just, just get out there and shoot. And I also hope honestly to inspire a lot of female photographers to, Uh, push themselves out of their comfort zones and share you know if they're not comfortable doing YouTube that's fine too Um, but you know even just on Instagram I've seen a lot of amazing work because of Instagram and I've met photographers I never would have met otherwise if it weren't for social media so I guess that that's what social media is for me is it's just kind of my vehicle my way into the community and to connecting with other people Um, But, you know, will I do it forever? I have no idea. I can't say yes. I can't say no. um, Because you just don't know what life has in store for you. But I will definitely be photographing as long as I can see and I can push a shutter button.
1: (laughs) So sort of along those lines, um, I haven't really asked you about your work on uh, CCR, the Classic Camera Revival, Uh, this year and of course I've enjoyed when you it's been the regular gang on there and you've been talking about a a camera or film or process or something like that but one of the things y'all done that I really enjoyed were these uh, female roundtable episodes and I think you've done one or two of them and you know we all just have the experience that we have and and mine is as a middle-aged white guy which is a pretty fairly typical experience that gets put out there into the community but other people haven't been as encouraged or supported uh... to be a part of the film photography community so i've really enjoyed uh... those episodes and getting to hear the perspectives and experiences of female and non-binary photographers and other people who've who it's been a little bit more of a struggle uh to be a part of the community so can you talk a little bit more about that
2: yeah um doing those round tables with the other female photographers is it's eye-opening um and it's just such a wonderful experience so i'm really glad that we do those uh, we have done two at this point, um, mm-hmm. and there's always plans for more. So you know, I'm really, I'm really honored to be able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I also feel humbled by other people's stories. You know, no matter what, um, I can only speak from my own perspective. And even mm-hmm. even as as a woman, my own perspective isn't always welcome because I'm white. I do have mm-hmm. a certain level of privilege that some people don't have. Um, and so there's certain discriminations that I never have to face because of that. I I do have to face other things. Uh, you know, some of our stories are similar, um, but some of our right. stories are very different. And so that's my favorite part about the community now is that we're really trying to promote those voices, trying to get those stories heard, um, and just trying to show everyone what the experience is like for other people Um, because I think it's so easy to forget that what happens to you isn't what's going to happen to someone else and when we sometimes give advice or talk to people we kind of tell them things but we're only telling them from our own experiences so Mm -hmm. I think that it's really helpful to kind of take that step back and listen to what other people have to say And take a look at your own experiences and the, maybe not the rose tinted glasses that we have over our experiences, but you know, you know how sometimes time tends to, tends to fade certain memories. But if we kind of look at it through, you know, through the looking glass and say, oh, well, wait, maybe that or whatever, you know, like we can, we can just kind of start to understand where they're coming from, where other people are coming from. Um, And I think that that is extremely powerful. And it also makes more people part of the community, which is really important as well. You know, I do know that there are a lot of female photographers that are really shy, a lot of them will have private uh, Instagram profiles. Um, And I do apologize, because if you have a private profile, I tend to not follow back because I have been burnt so many times (laughs) by following private, uh, you know, pages. Um, that I just don't do it anymore so unfortunately I'm really sorry at worst maybe try to send me a a, you know a private message Uh, sometimes sometimes I get to those sometimes I don't again um (laughs) but um but you know like some people and it's not just women it's not only women that are are shy to share their stories um because it can seem really egotistical, it, there has to be a bit of ego to throw yourself out there and to think your work is good enough for other people to look at. But you know for some, they're even more scared uh, from hearing stories that they'll hold themselves back from you know being a guest on a podcast or starting a YouTube channel or you know even trying to promote themselves more on social media. And so I think that the more that we hear all these different voices, maybe the more we can encourage everyone to, you know share what they have to share let let us see their stories And right. i think that will make everything you know it'll make the world a better place sorry to sound so cheesy but <laughs> it's true
1: <laughs> no i agree completely and those were a couple of good points you touched on um you know this is a topic that does get some pushback in the community and i'm not sure why it should uh but you know the two things you mentioned that i would just say you know first of all we we all have a different perspective on the world and see the world in a different way so you know for other photographers who do have a different experience and a different perspective on a subject I mean why wouldn't you want to expose yourself to those images to help inspire your own uh, take on on familiar subjects you know use it as as that inspiration and then the second thing that you touched on was uh, just welcoming more and more people into the community. I mean, while it does seem like the film community is getting stronger and getting a little bit more mainstream and more people are jumping in, I mean, film is still in kind of a precarious position. So, you know, if. if Even if you don't care about anybody else's photography, I mean, why wouldn't you want the community to be as big and healthy and strong as possible?
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, like I said, I'm never going to tell people, don't shoot digital. Um, but, But the more people that shoot film, the more companies have to keep making that film. And, you know, maybe we'll start to actually see new emulsions coming to life again uh you know more money will be put towards research and development uh you know maybe maybe again i'm kind of looking at this through a super optimistic rose tinted glasses kind (laughs) of kind of glass here but i do believe that that's true the more people that shoot film the more people that use it the more people that share it Uh, the more companies will listen and try to keep up with demand. Uh, I do know that right now the cost of film is turning a lot of people away. They're either not shooting it as much or they are going towards digital more often. I've seen people saying, you know, the shortages of color film is just pushing them to do color work on digital and uh, film work is black and white, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and while that's right for them, You know, I'm not here to judge or criticize anyone. You've got to do what you've got to do. For me, I have, I've never been shooting more film. I've never been paying more money for film and buying so much. Like I have so much film. It's, it's bordering on ridiculous. Um, I'm probably at the point where I could stop buying the film and just shoot it for a while. But then I keep getting like new formats, new cameras, like, you know, four by five, like how am I supposed to shoot four by five if I don't have film? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but you know, I think that the for sure the more people that do it, uh, the more companies will have to put their investment and time into either making the emulsions that we love more readily available um, or creating new ones, and hopefully. Hopefully prices will go down. I mean, I, I'm not that optimistic to say that it will because demand is there. Uh, You know, generally when prices go up on things, they tend to not really come back down all that quick uh, or at all. Um, But, you know maybe you know what actually to be more optimistic let's hope that the wages go up so that everyone who wants to shoot film can just afford to buy whatever it is they want and we can all shoot film and be happy or shoot digital i don't care (laughs) i'll I'll love you anyways
1: (laughs) well this has been great jess and i will definitely include links in the show notes to those roundtable episodes but Where else can people get in touch and see what all you've been up to? Well,
2: so as we mentioned earlier, I do have a YouTube channel. So you can just Mm -hmm. type Jess Hobbs into the search bar and my channel will pop up. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't post super regularly. Uh, I have seasons as well. When the farm work kicks in, then it's not as busy on the YouTube. But uh, right now I'm posting a little bit more regularly. So there's new content coming up. Um, you can also find me, uh, on Instagram at Jess Hobbs photo as well. Same handle on Twitter. And I love to connect with people so you can send me private messages. Uh, you can comment on my photos. You can comment on my tweets, which I also don't tweet very often <laughs> that I think of it, but <laughs> I'll try to be a little bit more active there. Um, but yeah, those are the places. Oh, and I, I just started, uh, Vero, right? That's what it's yes.
0: called? Yeah. I'm terrible. I, I
2: don't even know the <laughs> names of the social media i on. Yeah. So Vero, I started a Vero page. Um, so I'm at Jess Hobbs photo there too. Uh, I haven't, I've posted one thing so far, just the whole week video, but um, I, I'm hoping to get deeper into that as well and find more people on that platform too. Um, so, yeah, just, I guess at this point, just Google me and find me wherever you can <laughs> and I'll do my best to, uh, to write back.
1: That's awesome, Jess. Just uh, thank you so much again for your time.
2: Well, thank you so much, Billy, for having me on. This was uh, this was a pleasure. I always love talking with people and meeting new people in the community. Like we've talked a little bit through messages and stuff over uh, over the last few years, but it's nice to to actually sort of see you face to face. I guess like computer screen to computer screen, but that's right. enough.
1: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, thank you again.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Thanks again to Jess Hobbs for joining me to chat about music and photography. And again, for just being such a positive, supportive, encouraging member of the community. Please do check out the show notes and give her a follow and see what all she's been up to. Thanks as always to Mike Gutterman for our theme song, Timeless. Mike makes his music available for content creators on his Bandcamp page at mikegutterman.bandcamp.com and of course thanks to the team over at sunny 16 for hosting the sunny 16 presents feed you can get in touch with them at sunny 16 presents at gmail.com with ideas uh, things you would like to share with the community and of course as always as our friend john whitmore might say always try and be a decent human being